This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is Thanksgiving week. Obviously, Thursday is a big week for football. I feel like, honestly, during the NFL season, every week is a big week for football. But that includes especially Thanksgiving. And uh, there's a lot of attention paid to football all the time, but especially when it comes to the who's playing in the big game. There is a uh, very well-known sidelines reporter, a very prominent broadcaster named Charissa Thompson. She was an NFL sideline reporter for Fox for the 2008 through 2010 season, and she is now the host of pregame shows for both Fox and Amazon. She's one, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say she is one of the leading women in all of sports broadcasting. So a few days ago, she goes on a podcast called uh, Pardon My Take. It's produced by Barstool Sports. And she said she made a very interesting revelation. I'm going to play this for you. This is Teresa Thompson on um, this Barstool Sports Pardon My Take. I, and I've said this before, so I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. Um, I would make up the report sometimes because A, the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or it was too late. And I was like, I didn't want to screw up the report. So I was like, I'm just going to make this up because first of all, no coach is going to get mad if I say, hey, we need to stop uh, hurting ourselves. We needed to be better on third down. We yep. need to stop turning the ball Pressure over. The quarterback. We need, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and do a better job of getting off the field. Like they're not going to correct me on that. Right. So I'm like, it's fine. I'll it, just make up the report. Now, do you hear what she's saying? She's a reporter, albeit in sports, but sports is real life. She's a reporter, and she is admitting that she would make up conversations with the people that she was covering and then report them to the tv viewing audience as if it was fact now usually i would just let her off the hook with just a denunciation and be done with her this is awful okay this is beyond awful because since she made those comments on thursday afternoon those in the sports media industry particularly women have been looked at in a whole new light the fact that this prominent broadcaster, Charissa Thompson, just casually volunteered in an interview that she made up reports while working as a sideline reporter, this is a major scandal. Young women just beginning careers in sports journalism have been asking one another in group chats if the kind of practice that Miss Thompson was describing was okay. Think about that. So normally you wouldn't think that reporting false facts was ever okay, but she's admitting to it freely, freely. She wasn't caught. She's admitting to it. So now people look to her as someone that's made it, somebody that's making a living in this business, and they think, oh, it must be okay. Veteran, veteran journalists who've held prominent sideline reporting roles said they carefully crafted statements to post on social media, according to the New York Times, 
their impulse was to defend their profession, overriding their reluctance to criticize another woman. See, apparently it's kind of like a, a sisterhood among female sports journalists, because I guess it is a sort of a rough-and-tumble world. You're hesitant to criticize anybody that does what you do because you know how tough it is. But they're still criticizing her. Andrea Kramer, or Kramer, an Emmy-winning sports journalist who's reported from the sidelines of NF- of the NFL, she has also made calls from the broadcast booth. She described the damage from Thompson's comments as profound. In particular, she said it harmed those working as sideline reporters who were relied on to provide news on things like injury updates during the game and to elicit instant reaction from coaches and players. I think Andrea Kramer's exactly exactly right. I think what she did is awful. The damage that she has done to the credibility of sports journalists everywhere I think is on par with what Jason Blair did when he was making up stories for the New York Times. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And I get what she's saying, and I'll play you her comment again. I get what she's saying. Essentially what she's saying is she's making up boilerplate stuff that doesn't matter that any coach would say. Well, then why say anything if it doesn't matter? This is, again, what she said. I, and I've said this before, so I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. Um, I would make up the report sometimes because A, the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or it was too late. And I was like, I didn't want to screw up the report. So I was like, I'm just going to make this up because first of all, no coach is going to get mad if I say, hey, we need to stop uh, hurting ourselves. We needed to be better on third down. We yep. need to stop turning the ball Pressure over. The quarterback. We need, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and do a better job of getting off the field. Like they're not going to correct me on that. Right. So I'm like, it's fine. I'll it, just make up the report. Make up the report. Now this created shockwaves throughout journalism and throughout sports journalism in particular. So after a day of this, Miss Thompson totally disavowed what she said on the podcast, totally disavowed what I just played you. She posted the following on Instagram. She said, I have never lied. I have never lied about anything or been unethical during my time as a sports broadcaster. Now, she said that when a coach didn't provide information in a halftime interview, she would report her own observations and not attribute them to anyone. Is that what that sounds like? Not to me. To me, what this whole thing sounds like is she admitted that she had lied in doing these reports, fabricating facts, and got caught through her own doing. And then she's trying to backtrack because her career is in jeopardy and she was being hammered by all of her peers, including especially the female ones. I'm curious how you read this situation. What do you think the future holds for uh, Carissa Thompson? What do you think this means for the future of sports journalism? What do you think it means for the credibility of female journalists in the future? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I think this is a big deal, honestly, because this is not the first time that, as you heard in her comment there, that she's made this claim. Last year, on a podcast that she hosts with uh, another female reporter, Erin Andrews, she detailed a specific instance when she made up a report during a 2008 
Detroit Lions game after the team's coach, Rod Marinelli, told her he liked her perfume instead of answering her question. Ms. Andrews chimed in saying, I've done that too for a coach that I didn't want to throw under the bus because he was telling me all the wrong stuff. So you have Aaron Andrews saying the same thing. Then, you know, uh, a spokesperson for Aaron Andrews in response to this told the New York Times for her entire career, Aaron Andrews has worked very closely with coaches, players and PR staffs to ensure accuracy in her reporting. She added that what Ms. Andrews meant was that she took information from earlier meetings with coaches to include in her reports and that when she was on the air, she was always clear about where her information comes from. Makes you think, are they all doing this? You know, to me, this causes me to question now everything that a sideline reporter says. And I know people think, what's the big deal? It's a football game. Well, people take football very seriously. People take it seriously because there's hundreds of millions of dollars bet on it. People take it very seriously because it's the only thing on television, network television, that people seem to be watching. People seem to be taking it seriously because it is a very, it's a uniquely American game, so ingrained in our American traditions that it's practically as as a part of the Thanksgiving holiday as the as the stuffing and the yams are. I think this is a big deal. You know, uh, again, I, I, my friend Curtis Lewa, who's a radio talk show host in New York and uh, a great guy and a mentor. If you listen to Curtis, you know he makes things up all the time. I, I have been with Curtis. I, I've listened to Curtis describe meetings that I was at, and I just think that that didn't happen. I'll listen to him describe articles that he read that I read. And he just invents new facts in these articles. I'll listen to him describe, uh, you know, wholesale conversations that happened nowhere else but in his head. In my view, that's a bit different from what Carissa Thompson was doing and what um, Aaron Andrews may have done. Because I think when you're talking about uh, Curtis, Curtis is an entertainer. Curtis is not pretending to be a journalist. Curtis is there to put on a show. It's almost like a a stand-up comedian or a scripted television series. You're not listening to Curtis because you're expecting the literal truth. You're listening to get a chuckle or to be entertained. It's, I mean, it's like pro wrestling. Carissa Thompson does not hold herself out that way. Carissa Thompson holds herself out as a journalist. And I don't care that it's only sports. This is... Horrible, as far as I'm concerned. What do you think? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you have an opinion on this? Yeah, I think it's it's horrible, and I I know that the, um, the other sideline reporters are really pissed off about it. In fact, I know someone who is a NFL sideline reporter, a very prominent one, and she's pissed off about it. And for good reason, because they are there to report on the game, not to just spew out generic nonsense that people make fun of. Because I could do that. Well, you right. gotta be, we got to play right. defense better. Right. And, uh, exactly. But, but they, and that's what she's doing. And then she even says, how could she say she didn't lie? She even says, the first thing she says is, I haven't gotten fired for this, so I'll say it again. Right. I've made up reports. She says it plain simply. I mean, you can't hide what she said. So they have good reason for everyone to be annoyed, and I think her career is over. 
You she do. Has, oh, yeah. So you don't think she survives this? No, she That's has no credibility whatsoever. I, I think you're right. I think you're—I I don't know— um, the the only reason I part company from you in saying that her career may not be over is because I think that um, people are talking about her. And the one thing in America these days that seems to bode well for you is fame. And the more you're talked about, the more uh, Twitter followers you're getting, Facebook followers, the more of a buzz there is about you, the greater chance there is to do a recovery. And that she could write a tell-all book, what I learned, uh, yada, yada, yada. Look... If the wife of the Gilgo Beach killer is making a million dollars for a documentary, I think the lesson clearly is not that being right is what gets you ahead professionally. It's being famous or infamous. I I think you're right in that she's not going to go away, but I don't see how any network can hire her and not feel a backlash of people saying, we're not going to watch this game if she's the reporter. Well, you remember, I I guess the closest thing in conventional news that I see this uh, as being analogous to is uh, Brian Williams. Brian Williams was at the top of his game as the anchor of the uh, NBC Nightly News, and it came out that he was fabricating events, that he was making things up, and they got rid of him. And then he made a comeback on MSNBC and kind of never was the same, never had the same degree of success that he had uh, working for a network. But he did make he did have a second act. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Jerome Adams, the uh, former Surgeon General, is going to be here. And, uh, well, by phone, and we'll talk with him. You know, somebody just texted me, and you could text me as well, 8168-Morano. She's like a secretary who responds to emails for the boss without checking if it's acceptable. Should never work in the job again. Another person texting me. FYI, Frank, it is Charissa. Yes, it's pronounced like a Carissa, no ch sound. Okay, Carissa. Thank you, Igor. The, that's why he's a former listener of the week. Both of those people that just texted me, former listeners of the week. Uh, let me say hello to Joe in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Joe, I got you. Yeah, I don't think it's as consequential to uh, the game or a reflection on other reporters as much as you think it is. I think what she's saying, she might have mostly reported factual stuff, and she's almost she is bragging. In fact, that when I didn't get the scoop, I just filled the stuff in. So basically, what she's saying, I was slick, and she's bragging about it. So while it's so, I think it's just a reflection on how great she thinks she is that she was able to like insert that into the stuff when she didn't get the scoop. Interesting. Interesting. So you you don't think she'll be fired or anything? I don't know whether she'll be fired, but unless it's consequential to the betting public, unless it reverberates there, that's where it could be very consequential. Interesting. But but I just don't think, I think she might have been mostly legitimate, and then she felt like I need to the buffer stuff, and she's bragging that she was able to ad lib. She's bragging, basically. Interesting. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Jim's in Wisconsin. What do you think, Jim? Well, I think she's working her way to a podcast instead of a career in broadcasting. Mm. Um, 
she seems to be emulating the famous uh, Ronald Reagan, who faked all his baseball announcements. Well, first he of all, that's, announcer. that's not true, Jim. Um, the, the and you know, there's uh, not a lot of things that I know about. One is radio, and one is presidential history. I think what you're talking about is when Ronald Reagan worked as a sports announcer for WHO Radio in. Iowa in the 1930s. He would call the the Cubs games, but rather than being at the game, he would recreate the action from nothing but a slip of paper typed by a telegraph operator who was transcribing the plays via Morse code. And that's a lot different than saying you're watching something, saying you're experiencing something, and then uh, reporting something that way. But really, I'm only aware of one instance. That's June 7th, 1934, when the Cubs and the Cardinals were tied in the ninth inning, and uh, the line, the Morse code line, went dead. And rather than we'll lose his, down. rather than lose his audience, Reagan improvised a streak of foul balls that lasted nearly twelve minutes until the wire came back. You know, we know that because he shared that story for seventy years, or you know, sixty years. So it's not it, Reagan didn't routinely make up things. There was one instance where he was cut off from the information and he didn't say, oh, so-and-so hit a home run and now so-and-so hit a single. He created the fact that nothing happened and told the story brilliantly as only an actor that would then one day become the president can. I don't think it's the same at all, uh, honestly, Jim. I I think it's not similar in the least. 800-848-9222. Ray in New Jersey, what do you think? Yes. Uh, can you hear me all right, Frank? Yeah, Ray. What's on your mind? Uh, uh, I want to comment on uh, Jeffrey. and But first, with the reporter, you know, I think it's a bigger thing. Journalists, a lot of them are getting lazy because I'm not going to mention his name, but this guy was on TV and now he's on the radio. And he was uh, saying that all Trump talks about is, you know, bull crap. He doesn't talk about what he's going to do for the country. He he, he basically has the same speech every time. He talks about a lot of things. All right, so tell me what this do, has to know? do with Carissa Thompson, exactly. Well, I think journalism, they're getting lazy. Journalists, I think, is what I'm saying. You know, I, I think because the, the guy on the radio says this, but it, it's just not right, true. Well, I don't for, think again, he, forget about the guy on the radio. Just stick with the story uh, if you can. I, I'll be honest. I, I, I think what you're describing, Ray, is exactly the problem. And thanks for the call. I think a lot of people are going to listen to this Carissa Thompson story and they go, that's how journalists are. They're lazy and they make up things. When And that's why these journalists are so upset. And look, my wife's a journalist. She's never made up a, a single, as far as I know, never made up a single thing she's ever written in any story. And I, I, I think she, I haven't talked to her about this, but I think she would be r- rightly offended that folks are now viewing journalists the way that this guy Ray does. They're viewing them as a lazy class of people. All right. Uh, we're gonna, you, you want to talk about this, you can. 800-848-9222. I want to talk about COVID and drugs with a man who knows about both, the former U.S. Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl, and I wanna make her mine. And she's watching me with those eyes And she's loving with that body, I just know it And he's holding her in his arms late, late at night This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the common themes that we're seeing in survey after survey, doesn't matter who's doing it, doesn't matter whether the people are liberal, conservative, or non-political, the one thing they want to keep off of their Thanksgiving menu is politics. Survey after survey suggests that uh, people don't want to bring it up. It's too volatile. It's too heated of a discussion topic. And I know for a lot of folks, especially people that listen to talk radio 12 hours a day, if you can't talk about politics around the Thanksgiving table, what are you going to talk about? Well, a lot of the football games may not have results by the time you start your Thanksgiving feast. And uh, there's only so much traffic conversation you can have about how long it took you to get wherever you're going. Where does that go? So inevitably, the discussion turns to health. People love talking about health. They love, and I know it sounds weird, but it's true. They love talking about their own health ailments and people love giving recommendations for whatever is ailing someone else based on their own experience. Oh, you got to try my guy. He's the best. You got to try this person. He's the best. Unfortunately, one of the big public health crises uh, that we're seeing this year has to do with drugs. We are losing more people through drug overdoses each year than we lost in the entirety of the Vietnam War. Someone who is a genuine, honest-to-God expert in every aspect of health, including the drug crisis, is uh, someone I'm really honored to have on the program. He's the former U.S. Surgeon General and the author of the book Crisis and Chaos, Lessons from the Front Lines of the War Against COVID-19, the one and only Dr. Jerome Adams. Dr. Adams, it's great to have you on the program. 
Hey, it is great to be with you. And I just want to clarify really quickly. I'm not an expert in everything. You were telling that story and I was having PTSD about the first time I met my wife's um, uh, grandfather uh, at, at Thanksgiving dinner. And he calls me back into a back room and he says, I want you to look at something. And he starts um, unbuckling his pants. And he had a, a spot on his thigh that he wanted me to check out. I am not a dermatologist. I had to explain that to my wife's grandfather. And I want to make sure no one else has an incident like that this Thanksgiving day. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I would love to have been there when you told them that you're an anesthesiologist and that if he needed to be put out for any sort of surgery, then you're the guy to talk to. That would have been very funny. Um, let me ask you in all seriousness about COVID. It was three years ago. You were the Surgeon General and people were being warned, at least in the New York area, don't have Thanksgiving dinner with more than 10 people. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of questioning of ex expertise. Obviously, uh, everybody would do things somewhat differently through the prism of hindsight. And one of the most unfair questions you could ask is if you knew then what you know now. But uh, unfair as it might be, I'm going to ask you the question. Through the prism of hindsight, how do you feel uh, the U.S. government did and the Trump administration, including you, did handling COVID? Well, so that's a great question. And the first thing I'll say is, None of us did as good of a job as we could have or should have because uh, we, we've lost over a million people um, throughout the course of this pandemic. They, they, no, no way you can, you can say that that is acceptable, number one. Number two, we have to compare ourselves to how other countries did. And the honest truth is that when you look at infection rates, transmission rates in 2020 under the prior administration, we actually did about the same as most of Europe, most comparable developed nations. So the, the idea that, that we did horrible in terms of mitigation just quite frankly is not statistically true from the data. Where we did horribly, and I talk about this in the book, Crisis and Chaos, is once you got infected, you were far more likely to be hospitalized or to die if you were in the United States of America. And a lot of that has to do with our underlying health, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, mm. Um, it has to do with the fact that we've got far too many uninsured in this country, that people don't have paid time off from work. It has to do with these social drivers of health and the conditions that set us up for poor outcomes moving forward. And I highlight that in my book. We like to frame everything through the lens of politics. We like to say this administration did worse than that administration. But we're, it causes us to miss out on the, the true factors. That, that led to poor outcomes. The other thing that I'd want to mention, and I, I don't want to get political here, and this is not a political statement, but it's a contextual statement. October 2020, uh, Joe Biden in a presidential debate said of 200,000 COVID deaths, any president responsible for this many deaths should no longer serve. You can look it up. He said it. Well, fast forward a year later, um, under a year of the Biden administration, and we surpassed 300,000 deaths despite having vaccines, masks, testing, mm. treatment. Uh, the next year, in 2022, we had over 240,000 deaths. And I say that again, not to blame Joe Biden, but to say that we keep making the same mistakes over and over again because we're focused on the wrong issues. Uh, we think that changing the captain of the Titanic is going to change the outcome when we don't change our course. So anybody that thinks either Donald Trump or Joe Biden did the uh, best job uh, that w could be done or the worst job that could be done on the COVID I issue, uh, that's just playing politics. It's not accurate in either case. 
it's not the, the, the data proves that it is not accurate. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things about the book coming out now is that it gives us time to reflect. It's hard when you're in the fog of war um, and and COVID by any means is not over, but we're, we're now in a state where we can reflect and where we have data. And the data tells us that more people died in the first year uh, under the Biden administration than under the Trump administration. It tells us a million people have died and that's too much. And you could, I couldn't have said it better than you did. Neither administration did a great job. Neither administration uh, did, did, did um, a, a horrific job um, in terms of uh, slowing infection. We all could have done better and we need to focus on how we can do better in the future. I want to talk to you about the the drug problem that America is facing, which I think is a crisis by any measure. Uh, But before we uh, turn the page on COVID, I have to ask you about this. I hope it's okay. One of the things that you were uh, sort of dinged by by some members of the the press and the public was what was perceived to be conflicting information about masks. You and others were saying, uh, don't don't you don't need to go out and get masks. Uh, You don't need to do it. And then just a few months later, the messaging from you and others was was quite different. Do you regret the messaging on masks? And, and can you explain to the audience why that conflicting messaging took place? So, number one, absolutely uh, regret it. Like you said, hindsight is twenty twenty, And in the book, I am very honest. I'm very raw about the mistakes that we made. But I try to walk people through how we ended up making those those statements that were wrong or were confusing. And so I hope people will pick it up. It's on Amazon. It's the top number one new release in contagious diseases, if you're into contagious diseases. Um, but to answer your question, one of the big challenges was that we didn't have the right data to be able to make good recommendations. So China withheld information from us about the asymptomatic spread of mm. disease um, and about um, uh, how it was spreading person to person. And so we made recommendations that were similar to the recommendations we make every year during flu season for a respiratory virus. Clean, cover, and contain. Um, Wash your hands, uh, cover your mouth when you sneeze or cough, and stay at home if you're sick. Well, that doesn't work if you have a disease that's spreading asymptomatically because you don't know that you're sick. When someone has the flu, you can see it. They know it. When half of people have COVID, they don't know it and they can't see it. And so that is why initially we said, don't wear a mask. You don't need it. Stay home if you're sick. And then we realized, oh, half the people who have COVID actually don't know it. So we need to recommend that they wear a mask so they're not spreading it to other people. So that lack of information really hurt us early on. And one of the things I own in the book is that we need better communications help for people. Mm. Uh, I actually explained all this in the tweet that I put out when I told people not to wear masks, but nobody read past the first tweet. It, you know, it, it, they didn't read tweet number two and tweet number three. And that, that's on me. But it's also reflective of the fact that we need professional communications help at the CDC, at the FDA, and beyond. And defunding public health is not going to put us in a better position to collect the data that we need or to communicate it to the public in a way that, that helps them understand it. And so, I, again, I talk about this in the book a lot. And, um, and I think it's, it's important for us to reflect on what we sure. did, but to try to do it in a positive way so we can do better in the future. 
If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Jerome Adams. He's the former U.S. Surgeon General and the author of the uh, new book, best-selling book, apparently. Congratulations. Crisis and Chaos Lessons. I want to be clear about that. I'm not beating out Britney Spears' new book, even though there are stories about (laughs) Axl Rose and about and about Nikki Six in my book, I, you know, but, but, but I'm not beating out Britney's new book. See, you should have included a Justin Timberlake anecdote. That would have done it. Uh, the book is called Crisis and Chaos, Lessons from the Front Lines of the War Against COVID. I, I, my wife and I both got flu shots last week. Was that the smart move on our part? Should people do that? Absolutely. The average county in America um, uh, loses $2 million in lost productivity and absenteeism every year because people don't get their flu shot. So you should absolutely get your flu shot. Um, You should also talk to your doctor about um, whether or not a COVID shot is right for you. And for most of America, an updated COVID vaccine is the right thing to do. Uh, It will not only help you stay out of the hospital, and, and most people haven't actually been vaccinated in over two years. We get a flu shot every year. Most people haven't gotten an updated COVID vaccine in over two years in this country. Uh, it'll help you prevent hospitalization and death, but it'll also help prevent, you know, you just uh, having disruption of your holiday plans. You don't want to have to cancel Thanksgiving or miss out on Thanksgiving because because uh, of a COVID outbreak within your family. And you certainly don't want to spread COVID to your grandmother, to your grandfather, to vulnerable people who we tend to gather around over the holidays. So great time for a COVID vaccine. Great time for a flu vaccine. And if you're someone who's reluctant to get mRNA, Novavax is now available. That's made the way uh, the flu vaccine is traditionally made. So no mRNA technology in Novavax. You've got choices. All right. I want to talk to you about this drug crisis that America is facing. Unfortunately, drug overdose deaths reached another record level in the United States in the spring. According to data from the CDC, it looks like uh, this year is on track to be another devastating year. More than 111,000 people died from a drug overdose in the 12-month period ending in April. And statistics are one thing, and 111,000 people sounds like a lot. And then you look at some of the personal stories involved here. Last week, uh, Dana Carvey's son, uh, Dex, died at the age of 32. You look at uh, the photos of Dana Carvey and his son, Dex, they look as happy as can be. Dex looks relatively uh, healthy in all these photos. He looks young, full of energy. And this, I hope, will serve as a wake-up call to remind them of uh, what a crisis the country is facing. What's driving this drug problem in your view, uh, Dr. Adams? Is this unique to America or is this a problem the whole world is facing? Well, um, you you mentioned um, Dana Carvey's son, tragic. Also, Matthew Perry um, recently, who we know has struggled with with addiction throughout his life and was very public about it. And and you ask, is this a, a United States problem or a global problem? What's interesting is we're seeing that this is increasingly a global problem. We import uh, or export, unfortunately, bad things in the United States. We're exporting uh, fatty foods and, di- and diabetes to other countries. And if you go to a developing uh, country now, you will see um, the typical American fast food restaurants there and their, their waistlines are getting bigger and their high blood pressure is, is getting bigger. But, uh, but also important to understand the origin of this crisis uh, was in many ways overprescribing that happened over a decade ago. Um, and uh, that overprescribing 
led to addiction uh, in, in far too many places. We clamped down on the on the overprescribing, but we didn't actually treat the root causes, people's pain, their mental and their physical and emotional pain. And so people then shifted to heroin. And it went from a, uh, from a, a prescription opioid crisis to a heroin crisis. Well, uh, th- then we saw it continue to shift yet again into a fentanyl crisis. And fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than morphine. It is, it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. It's interesting. I was talking with someone, you talk about personal stories, um, who was in recovery just last weekend. I was at a restaurant. Um, and so I, I share that because people need to know that recovery is possible. This person had been in recovery for eight years, but he said to me, he has lost friends to the fentanyl crisis. He said, you know, once upon a time, it was very rare to have someone die from a drug overdose. He said, you have to really mess up to die from a heroin overdose. He said, but right now, uh, people are just dropping dead left and right from fentanyl because it is so much more potent. It is so much more powerful. And that's one of the reasons I'm really glad to be with you today to talk about uh, this new medication called OpVie uh, that, that has actually uh, been designed to help us adapt to this new crisis that we have of fentanyl. It's, uh, it, it in many ways was designed to mimic the, uh, the pharmacology of fentanyl uh, and to be able to reverse a fentanyl overdose. We hear, unfortunately, uh, far too often, first responders, police officers, firefighters saying that they're having to administer multiple doses of opioid overdose reversal to individuals because of fentanyl. And, uh, and so now we need new tools. And this, uh, one of these new tools is Opti. I know a lot of folks are familiar with uh, naloxone or Narcan, other overdose medications. Uh, Tell me about Opvi, and I know it's recently been uh, approved by the FDA, if I'm understanding that correctly. What does it do that's different from Narcan? Well, I have to be careful in terms of comparing and contrasting because of the labeling. But what I can tell you is when I was Surgeon General, I put out a a call to action calling on more people to be aware of, of the fact that they can administer opioid overdose reversal. Um, it's, it's just like a, 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 the same thing that you use for allergies, allergy medication. You, you, can, uh, you can squirt it through your nose. Um, and uh, at the time, the only uh, medication available was naloxone or Narcan. And uh, that saves tens of thousands of lives, uh, and it's still a good product. Uh, I will tell you that, uh, again, stories I've heard over and over again are that people are having to administer um, multiple doses of naloxone in order to reverse a fentanyl overdose. And so uh, uh, nasal nalmaphene uh, is actually, uh, or Opti, is actually been, de- it's been designed to last longer and to actually reverse a, uh, a fentanyl overdose. And the FDA has approved it uh, as such. And so uh, I, I think it's another tool in the tool, che- to, tool chest. Uh, we, we need to evolve as the epidemic is evolving, and this is the next evolution in our fight. And so uh, I just want people to be aware of it, just as I wanted them to be aware of naloxone, that any one of us can save a life. Uh, we want to make these products available um, in, 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 on college campuses. We want to make them available um, in public places and restaurants, uh, because unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, you're more likely in many cities to encounter someone who's having an opioid overdose than you are to encounter someone who's having a heart attack. We know CPR. We all need to be in a position to be able to respond to an opioid overdose uh, with opioid overdose reversal agents such as Opti. 
So uh, whether it's uh, Opfi or Narcan, would, do you recommend that if someone has an addict in their life or someone that's struggled with opioid use, that they keep this in the house regularly in case the worst happens? Well, we absolutely recommend that if someone um, around you is suffering from addiction, has a substance use disorder, that uh, they are at high risk in this new era where, where fentanyl is in everything. Fentanyl is in over 90% of samples uh, that, that we take of, it, of illicit drugs, uh, that, that you keep an opioid overdose reversal agent around. And my recommendation, again, as a physician, is that you are prepared for a fentanyl overdose. And, uh, and Opvi is a, is a product that will prepare you for a fentanyl uh, overdose. Um, but, uh, yes, absolutely. Those are people who should have it. We think that uh, first responders, such as firefighters and police officers, should carry it. Um, and we think we should have it in public places where you hear about people overdosing in restaurant bathrooms. You hear about college students, unfortunately, um, getting pills that they don't even realize have fentanyl in them. They think they're um, Molly uh, or, uh, you know, or MDMA, or, or they think that they are um, – that they are a, a benzo, benzodiazepine, something to help them sleep or something to help them study, Ritalin. Uh, Brett Bauer's son, uh, a newscaster, actually died from an overdose uh, while in college uh, because he thought he was taking a pill uh, that, that was wow. uh, going to help him study, and it had fentanyl in it. I see. I had no idea about that. I follow this stuff pretty closely. I had no idea. And uh, I appreciate you bringing Opvi to uh, our attention because uh, I think it's something that a lot of people might not necessarily know about because it's been recently approved by the FDA. Uh, talking with Dr. Jerome Adams, I'm going to let you go in a minute, Dr. Adams. But whether we're talking Opvi or Narcan or anything else, let's say someone's life gets saved by one of these overdose medications. How does a family member, a friend, someone that saves their life or an, a frontline worker, how do you then make sure that the cycle doesn't repeat, that they don't just get their life saved from a drug overdose and then go about just continuing to do drugs because they didn't die? You know what? That, I'm so glad you asked me that question because a couple of things I want to unpack quickly. First of all, um, it takes most people uh, between seven to 10 times before they actually uh, can be successful in recovery. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that recidivism is it, addiction is, is, is hard to kick, whether you're talking about cigarettes or whether you're talking about giving up food or whether you're talking about giving up uh, opioids. And so we need to understand that it can take a while and it takes patience and it takes evidence based help. Uh, we need to make sure when someone uh, does have an overdose that we have a warm handoff to a peer recovery coach, someone who's been through it before and can help them get into a treatment center. We need more treatment available, but we also need to create recovery-friendly communities. And I'm doing that at Purdue University, where I'm the director of health equity. Uh, we're trying to work with college campuses and create environments where people can be successful in recovery because you come out of treatment and then you can't get a job um, or you're forced back into an environment where people are doing things around you that are triggers, that's only going to cause you to get back in trouble all over again. But most of all, I want the public to know, number one, 988 is a number you can call if you are struggling uh, with mental health issues or if you're struggling with addiction. 988 is a new, it's the new um, crisis prevention hotline, and uh, you can get connected to help by calling that in any state, number one. 
Number two, um, know about and be willing to carry an opioid overdose reversal agent, particularly if you are in a high-risk setting or, um, or you're someone uh, who, who, who's a relative or friend of someone who's high risk. And again, everyone knows about naloxone or Narcan, uh, but I want people to also know about OPV or nasalnalmethine because uh, it's designed to work uh, uh, in a world where fentanyl is pervasive. Now, those are the two most important things that anyone should know about and can do. Lastly, I'll end with this, sir. You alluded to America's problem with obesity and how that was one of the situations that actually exacerbated the uh, COVID situation or the COVID pandemic. A lot of people are going to be overeating this week, but this is not a holiday time problem that America has. It seems like it's a year-round problem. And even with a lot of these drugs, Ozempic and Wegovy, seems like it's getting worse. And I'm curious what the root cause of this is this um, is this due to what's in our food uh, things like high fructose corn syrup is it due to uh, being as simple as overeating is it due to a sedentary lifestyle or is it a combination of factors if you're going to pick pinpoint one cause regarding america's obesity problem what is it well interestingly there's a lot of parallels to the opioid epidemic it's supply and demand so number one uh, we have and over-availability of unhealthy options out there, as you mentioned, high fructose corn syrup, salty foods, um, uh, sugary, sugary foods. They're foods that are designed to be just like drugs, just like heroin. They're designed to be highly addictive. But we also have a high demand, and many people are self-medicating their pain uh, with food, uh, with cigarettes. Um, uh, now many people are vaping, uh, but, but also with, uh, with, with drugs with opioids. And so we need to deal with underlying mental health issues that folks have, um, anxiety, depression, et cetera. We need to create healthier communities where the healthy choice is the easy choice. And if we do that, then we're going to have less people choosing to smoke, choosing to drink, um, choosing to, uh, uh, to, to overeat, choosing to, uh, to self-medicate with, with opioids. But in the meantime, we need to also make sure um, we're preventing people from dying. And that's, again, where OPV comes in. We want to make sure we're saving the life. We're getting people into treatment. We're creating recovery-friendly communities. And we're also turning off the spigot by creating communities where people have healthy ways to actually release their stress and to deal with life. Dr. Jerome Adams, a real pleasure to talk with you. I hope we can do this again. Good luck with the book. I hope so, too. Happy Thanksgiving. Check out my new book, Crisis and Chaos, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's a quick and easy read. It's fun. Uh, my wife actually gave it a ringing endorsement. She said, hey, it's actually pretty good. And, and my wife is used to editing and looking through my, my journal articles and, uh, and falling asleep. So that's a ringing endorsement from Lacey Adams. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for having me today. Um, and remember, you can save a life by carrying OpV. Uh, and uh, and you can actually help save your life by, uh, by by being cognizant of what you're eating this Thanksgiving, making sure you're trying to be active, making sure you're paying attention to your own health. Well, absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving to you, uh, to Lacey and to your children. And again, I'll encourage people to check out the book, uh, a really unique perspective in terms of the worst in one of the worst incidents in modern American history. It's called Crisis and Chaos. Thanks, Dr. Adams. Thank you so much. Take care.
If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive. And the world, I'm turning inside out. I'm floating around in ecstasy. Queen singing Don't Stop Me Now. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection by uh, from the political director of ABC News, Rick Klein, who's actually one of my favorite journalists and uh, somebody, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're certainly friendly and uh, a great guy, a guy who has b- become very accomplished in the world of journalism at a very young age. And I guarantee you he's not making up anything. <laughs> Whether it's about football, music, or anything else. All right, if you want to comment on anything we're talking about, uh, five open lines, 800-848-9222. So my friend Al, um, he was a lifelong New Yorker. I I met him. He was basically a listener to the show. I mean, he was more than that. He was a high-ranking member of the Department of Sanitation, and then he became a listener to my show, and we became good friends. He was at our wedding uh, four years ago, and we would hang out all the time. But he moved to... um, you know, out of state a few years ago. So whenever he's in New York, I make an effort to see him. And he messages me last week. He says, hey, I'm going to be in New York on November 20th. Do you want to meet for breakfast? And I said, great, November 20th, fine, I can meet. Now, I didn't realize fully that uh, November 20th was a Monday. And Monday is my toughest day. The toughest aspect of Monday is staying awake for the drive home from work to home because you sw- snap back into the nocturnal schedule from the regular schedule. But uh, so I said, I had the bright idea. I said, well, Al, why don't you come over for dinner? You and your wife come over for dinner Monday night instead. So I'm thinking that I get out of this Monday meeting and, you know, I, I do want to see Al. And uh, had he said no, then I would have had to meet him Monday morning because, you know, he's making himself available enough that I do have to meet him. So he says, sure, great, love it, and looking forward to it. And my wife says to me over the weekend, she's kosher with it, she's cool, and she said, well, what is his wife's name? I said, uh, well, I, I, I can't say with certitude what his wife's name was. I know we were invited to the wedding. I'm going to work on finding out that wife's name. Ah, I think it was Giovanna, or was that his ex, or was that his ex girlfriend? I don't know. Is it Giovanna? I think it's Giovanna. All right, we'll we'll come back to that. So uh, she sends me with a shopping list. I go out and buy uh, four fillets of wild salmon and all sorts of other stuff at the uh, supermarket. 
We go to the supermarket, and now, you know, again, this is all happening between the time I wake up and the time they're coming over around 6 o'clock. So it's all happening very quickly. So I take Carmine to the supermarket with me. He was incredibly poorly behaved. He wanted to push the shopping cart, okay? And he pushes it in the wrong direction. So I said, buddy, let me help you. I'll help you. And he gets upset. He starts crying. So I said, all right, bud, you're not pushing it. You have to ride the cart. He was screaming so loudly. I'll tell you, um, I'll give you some more details of that uh, next hour. And we have some other interesting things coming your way, including the JFK assassination. Keep asking questions.